Oh, yeah, look at me. I'm talking to no one. Hi, I'm Pastor Gillespie, St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. Uh, we're going to be studying Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Now you can hear me. And uh, verse 5 and following. I don't know how far we'll get if we'll get into chapter 2. Probably not too far if we get there. I think the reason for that is, as I think the comments came back last time, it's a dense book, this book of Hebrews. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, in my preparation for tonight, I found that I just don't, I, I don't want to go too fast. I think we really need to take the time to really dig into it. Yeah, there's about a 30 second lag between the video and uh, the chat. So I don't actually, I don't actually know that I forgot to turn on my mic. I had to turn it off because the kids are doing bedtime and it was going to be too chaotic during the music. Anyway, neglected to turn it back on. Um, so, Hebrews. I'm going to use New King James Version then, because I see we've got ESV, we've got NIV, and we have Old King James. Well, that's close to New King James. So we can use, we'll use a couple different translations here. All right, good. So let's see. Oh, let's do this one where you can see me. There you go. And we got some chat up there. No sound, can't hear you. Yes, yes. I don't know when it's going to keep scrolling. Eventually it'll scroll. All right. I think it's worth, uh, well, first starting with prayer, but also we'll go back to the beginning of the book just to give us some context again. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've re revealed to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, the fullness of the Godhead, which dwells bodily. We ask that uh, you would reveal to us um, how powerful his name is to us, uh, what great works he's done for us, and certainly uh, give us that vision to see um, that he has conquered every foe and has put all his enemies under his feet. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I don't know why the chat window there is not refreshing. How do I make it refresh? The downward not visible. Control. Dun, 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 dun. Chat restream. Okay. And it's back. Ready to display messages. Okay. Good. So, Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, to review. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he himself had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. All right, so a couple things just for recap. Um, to get us back into this chapter. Uh, the first is, is that there's a sense of time. I think you might remember that from last week. We have various times, all right, and in various ways. So we have times and methods, right? Um, the times are including time past, right? That's the prophets. Last days, that's the, the current time. And then um, the beginning of creation, the beginning of time through whom he made all the worlds. And then, of course, we have 
has seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, so that's eternal. Um, so not just the last days, but into eternity. So you have all those times. We have the ways. He spoke by the prophets. He speaks by his son. He speaks by the word of his power. He speaks through the glory and express image of his person. Um, and, of course, we'll get to him speaking now within the congregation. I, I think that's maybe something I mentioned last week, but it's worth remembering, too, is that this is a sermon. So he's speaking to us now. This word is, um, it's, not just con- it's not just content about God or content about creation or about the world. Um, it actually is doing what it says. We call that a divine speech act <laughs> in theology. I know it sounds uh, kind of complicated, um, but, but it's simply this. His word does what it says. It does it not just in the past tense, but it does it in the present tense. All right. So when he when it says he speaks to us, he has spoken to us by his son. He is speaking to you even now as you study this. This is this. I mean, this is old hat maybe for you as a Christian. You know that God speaks to you through his word, right? But it's a present tense speaking. It's not a past, just a past tense. Although he did speak in the past, and the word was recorded in the past, but it always brought forward to the present. So you want to hear God speak to you. He does it now by his son in his word, right? And so you don't need special revelation. You don't need um, angels to come to you with a new message. That's that's the reason why angels don't speak to us today in the way that they do in the scriptures, because now we have the voice of the very son of God. Uh, We don't need that intermediary. We don't need Moses to speak on behalf of God. We don't need angels to come and speak on behalf of God. And that's actually going to come up quite a bit here in this, uh, in the following verses of this chapter, is that relationship of Jesus to the angels. Uh, and actually, since he, he does introduce it here right in verse 4, um, verse 4 is then the lead-in to everything that's going to come after here, which is seven um, quotations in a row um, that seem to be just kind of like uh, watching Donald Trump debate Joe Biden, or whatever you wanted to call that. I don't know if it was a debate so much as you know, running them up into a corner and then just throwing punch after punch after punch, right? So it's kind of a boxing ring. It's an old school debate, <laughs> uh, more like the Lincoln-Douglas debates than um, like what we've been used to for the last few decades. And um, it may make us uncomfortable, <laughs> uh, but it is actually particularly evocative to um, the way that people actually argue. Uh, it reminded me, it was funny because you know I was kind of um, thrown off by how um, just off off the hook the uh, <laughs> debate was, and then uh, I taught catechism today, and I have three girls, um, all you know, preteen, teenage girl, early teen girls. They they actually argue with me in the same exact way as we saw in the debate. They're all talking at the same time. I I'm trying to like make head or t- heads of tail or what what is happening. They don't mean it in a mean spirited way. That's just that's how they communicate. They're, they're all yelling out at the same time. I don't want them to hold up their hands and all that nonsense. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, I feel like the debate moderator and I have to just try to make heads or tail of what's being said. Um, so uh, regardless of that, that's what's actually going to happen here in this chapter. So it's kind of funny um, that we experienced that yesterday. It's just like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven punches in a row uh, from the scriptures. And the, if you imagine this was actually preached in the congregation, the hearers would have had no time to really like figure it out. Like, what did he just say to us? 
it has that um i don't know what the um yeah i am used to it in my in our family it's true yeah uh or or like especially when i'm on speakerphone that's the worst <laughs> and everybody's talking in the background i'm like i don't know what's going on whatever it's also why i don't like the card game my play, family plays because everybody's playing cards they're like parallel playing on the same piles it's a game it, i don't particularly care for it because it's like it's not orderly and it's not done decently um it's really chaotic and and maniacal and my family enjoys it so i guess it is like that um what are we talking about oh angels <laughs> sorry for the uh, distraction there um the relationship of jesus to the angels is important and it's not maybe as Im- it's probably not a conversation we have very often we actually don't talk about the spiritual realm all that much um, and I think that's because we're children of the Enlightenment, meaning um, we're we're very much rational people. And, and of course, being reasonable and rational is good. It's given to us, as Luther says in the first article of the Creed, you know, he gives us our reason and our senses, right? Um, so that's good. Uh, but on the other hand, there is every, you know, all that God reveals about what we can't see, what we can't know by sight. Uh, referring to both the angels and the demons, referring to the the heavenly battles, referring to, um, you know, the powers of darkness that are at work, even in our world today. Uh, So that has to be revealed to us. Now, this was not the case in the first century when this was written. Um, They had a much higher um, sense of the spiritual, Um, not in like a supernatural, you know, um, what do you want to say? Oh, I don't know, like you're watching one of these science fiction shows or something. Um, Not in that sense. No, they actually understood that when God speaks of angels being like guardians and messengers, that's a reality. They they just, they didn't reject God's word. As a matter of fact, um, both early Christians, but especially um, Jews in the, uh, that are in the interim period between what we call the Old Testament, the scriptures, and the giving of the gospel, um, they had many pious ideas. Uh, you can read these in First Enoch, which is an apocryphal book. Um, but First Enoch is where we get the names of the angels, um, some of which we know quite well, being this week uh, the church celebrates St. Michael and all the angels. Well, Mike, Mike Mikael, he's named in the book of First Enoch. That's where his name comes from. Um, he's named as one of the four archangels. You know one of them because he appears in, in uh, Luke's gospel, the angel Gabriel, right? Gabriel. So they all end with L. There's Mikael, Gabriel, Raphael, and um, I can't remember the other one. Well, maybe we'll come up with it. And those, uh, the Jewish understanding was those were the four archangels that go, guard the throne of heaven, right? And so they'd be at the four corners of the altar, if you like. Well, I mean, we actually celebrate St. Michael and all angels. One of these angels that is, the name is given in, given in an apocryphal book, but, but also then um, confessed in, in the book of Revelation. So uh, the reason I bring that all up is that that all this angel angelography, I guess we might call it, all this piety surrounding angels that are, is going to come up in the rest of this chapter, um, but also is present in um, the angels ministering to Jesus both after his uh, temptation in the wilderness, but also um, after his prayer in, or in Gethsemane, right, and it being tormented in Gethsemane, the angels minister to them there, um, but then also that all the spe- all the language about angels, say, in Revelation. Um, that's all based on a, on a strong tradition um, that Christians actually haven't de- rejected 
uh, we've just largely forgotten. All right, so, um, but, but again, what is Christ's relationship to those angels then would have been very important in the first century world. That's, that's what that's all leading towards. They want to know, is he just another angel or um, what is his position? What's his authority, right? And to, and to prove the point of where Jesus stands in relation to God, in relation to the angels, I mean, he's just going to quote scripture after scripture. So we should look at these. Um, all right, so that's what we're seeing here in verse 4. Having become so much better than the angels, higher than the angels, he has by, an, by inheritance um, obtained a more excellent name than they. So um, here the introduction is to name. All right, so the name of Jesus. And what names does Jesus bear? Uh, we talked about this in our catechism here with the children just what is it, 743? So it was about two hours ago. Now uh, that's how I uh, introduced the first petition to the Lord's Prayer, which was what we were studying um, because we also studied Acts chapter 1 and the, uh, the preaching of, of St. Peter there um, on Solomon's portico. And it has to do with the name and by the name and through the name. Well, what is the name that Jesus bears? And that's what he's going to deal with here in the rest of this chapter. So, uh, we best read that. So, uh, I'm going to use uh, I'm going to use a couple different translations. I'm going to I'm trying to go parallel read here at the same time. All right. So verses one through six. Uh, For to which of the angels did he, that is God, ever say, "You are my son. Today I myself have begotten you." And again, I'm I myself will be father to him, and he himself will be son to me. Uh, But when he brings the firstborn back into the world, he says, I got a scroll here, there we go, and let all God's angels perform prostration before him. Perform prostration, uh, translated here as worship. Okay, And about the angels, he, on the one hand, says, he makes his angels spirits and his liturgists, okay, we're going to talk about that, a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is for the age of age, a, and the scepter of equity hmm, is a scepter of your kingship. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. I'm going to scroll. There we go. This is why your God has anointed you, O God, rather than your companions, with the oil that produces gladness. And you, Lord, scroll a little bit. There we go. You, Lord, at the beginning founded the earth, and the skies are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all wear out like clothing. Like a cloak, you will roll them up. You, however, are the same. And your ears, yes, your years, excuse me, will never end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, here's Psalm 110, we talked about last week, sit down at my right side 
until I make your foes a stool for your feet? Are not all of them liturgizing, being very intentional about that, liturgizing spirits commissioned for ministry for the benefit of those who are to inherit salvation? Question mark. All right. So quite a bit here. And if you've got a study Bible, this is really helpful because they'll give you all the citations so that you can actually uh, break them down. All right. So you can see where do these things come. So first question. Um, well, maybe before we do that, a little bit about the, uh, about the, what you want to call them, the uh, structure. That's what we should talk about. Structure. All right. So this is um, the answer to verse 4, right? Um, having been so much better than the angels, right? So we're going to explain that. Um, it looks maybe a little bit haphazard, um, but it's not. He's using a couple different rhetorical devices here in, in doing the string together. And this actually has a technical name. This whole section has a technical name. It's called a florilegia. A florilegia. And you hear floral in there? Um, uh, in medieval time, they just call them posies. So this is where there's a central thought, and then there's the petals that are given around it. Uh, that's what they called it in antiquity. You see it in Jewish and Christian writings. Um, there's a few different ones. And uh, yeah, flora legium. I had to look this up. Uh, and there's actually a place, um, there's a couple places where Paul does this. So maybe it's actually worth looking at. I'll just, we don't have to spend a lot of time on them. Probably the most famous one is Romans chapter 3. All right. Um, verses 10 to 18. All right. So this is it when he's making this confession about sin and all men being born into sin. So you'll notice what he does here, right? They are all under sin as it is written. All right. And then he's going to have seven. So there's this, it's six petals with a central, you know, uh, what do you call that? Part of the flower, whatever that middle part is called. All right. And the middle idea, of course, is that, um, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, or all are under sin. That's the central idea, right? So then he strings together all these Psalms and Deuteronomy, and I can't remember all that's involved here. Let's see if I have a list. Yeah, they're all from the Old Testament. Um, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands, et cetera, et cetera. Their throat is an open tomb. Their mouth is an open tomb. The poison of the asps. You've heard this before, right? This is that idea. Just a string of, string of quotations in a row. Um, he does this again, actually, at the end of the book, Romans 15. Let's see. Yeah, here it is. Florilegia. F-L-O-R-I-L-E-G-I-A. Flor Florilegia. I guess it would be legia, actually. It's from the, from the Greek. Okay. Um, that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. So with that central idea, then he's going to make this flower around that idea. For this reason, I confess you among, and again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And again, Isaiah says, all right, see how it works? Actually, that's one, two, three, four of them. All right. So that's a flower with four petals. We call that a, uh, what you call it? Four-leaf clover. Yeah, it's a clover. Beautiful. So, I mean, this is a common, actually, rhetorical device, um, and it's used in the ancient world. You see it in Greek and uh, Hebrew Jewish writings. 
So that's pretty cool. And Paul does it twice in Romans, so that's pretty neat too. Um, and that's what's happening here in Hebrews chapter 1. All right, so that was, that was the first point. Pretty cool stuff, actually, when you see how it works. This is seven. There's seven petals, um, or seven quotes. Then there's also um, rhetorical devices when it comes to, um, what do we call them? Rhetorical questions. All right, so there's two of them here right in verse 5. Um, to which of the angels? And, um, and again, right? Oh, actually, it's, it's two in a row. To which did he ever say? So we have both of those ideas, to which and ever, expecting a negative um, example, right? Um, and then you see in, where's the other one? Comes up in here, 13 and 14. To which of the angels ever said, there it is again, are not they all ministering spirits, right? So those are rhetorical questions. He's leading you by the question to the answer. We call them leading questions. It's kind of like um, Chris Matthews. Was that? No, it wasn't Matthews. Chris, uh, whatever his name was, the debate guy last night. Well, you know, Mr. Trump, you didn't, um, you don't have a plan about X, Y, Z. So what do you have to say about that? You're like, that's a leading question. When you, when you actually make, you're trying to make a case rather than just say, how do you feel about climate change with all the wildfires and the hurricanes and things? How do you feel about that? Just giving, um, just data not actually trying to make a point, just simply asking a question. That's what a moderator actually does. Um, instead, what we saw is actually another debate partner who was making, um, giving evidence, um, maybe for his question, but really trying to lead, um, to lead the debate in a particular direction rather than just moderate the, the men who are supposed to be debating with each other. All right, so that was one of the reasons why it was so chaotic is that the moderator stopped moderating and instead started debating. Um, yeah, so we have those rhetorical questions. Are not, are not, ever, and which, to which, to which. Um, you also see, this is what we saw in verses 1 through 4, but it happens here again. Um, we have a change of time happening throughout this. So we have, uh, and it, it, it's, it's grammatically done through the use of tense, right? So we have um, what's called Greek aorist, which is roughly our past tense to present tense, to perfect tense. So past happened in the past, present happening currently, perfect it has and will be happening forever, right? So uh, I'll give you the perfect because that's probably a little bit less widely understood. Um, it's right here. It's not so evident maybe in, in English. Uh, how did I translate that? Da, da, da. Sit down at my right, right side until I make your foes a stool for your feet. And that making your enemies your footstool is uh, perfect. It's not just making it now, but making it forever. All right. So conclusive perfect is what we call that. Uh, present tense was right here, six to seven. Let all the angels of God worship him. Present tense. Uh, not only, and he says, that's present tense too. Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Also present tense. All right. Um, then there's another one. This one's maybe not quite as obvious, but this is, this is lovely. I mean, it's just wonderful composition here as far as the, um, the author goes. Um, we have a, an alternation between the word chi, which is usually translated as and. So here we see it right in verse 5, and again, right? Chi, pollen in Greek. Um, and then with the adversive particle de uh, in Greek, which is but. So and but, and, 
but, all right, see it? And I'm scrolling fast, but. See how it goes back and forth? And, but, and, but, and, but. Okay. Um, really lovely. And uh, making a point that way. And then uh, the fourth thing that I wanted to point out to you here is um, a grammatical change um, in terms of oh, uh, the subject. So here, you, I, right? So you have first person um, and second person, you, right? So there's that, that's the father speaking of the son. Um, but then we also have, when it talks about the angels, it goes impersonal. Let all the angels, who makes his angels, right? It's not I or you, um, but it's third person, impersonal, right? But then you have loved righteousness. I, therefore God, your God has anointed you. You see that? So when it's, when it's the father speaking of the son, it has that uh, first person to second person language, I to you, right? But then the third person is when the angels are talked about there, um, third person. So that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty clever, actually, <laughs> and as far as which quotations he chose. You and I quotations referring to the relationship of father to son, and then quotations about the angels that are impersonal. All right, so seven quotations. I think I've said that a few times. Um, and these are all, these would all be great quotations to give to someone who's being catechized towards baptism or who has been newly catechized in baptism to learn who Jesus is, right? And who he is for you. And again, this is all, um, what did I call it before? This is all uh, performative language. Uh, what did I say? Divine speech act. <laughs> um, this is all words. It, well, actually, it's an important feature. You'll note it, it doesn't actually say, for to which of the angels is it written? You note that? But it actually says, did God, he ever say, God the Father ever say? So it's the quotation, it just says, he says, God says, immediately. There's not, God said through the prophets, God said through the scriptures, even God said through the Son. It actually is just God spoke. He says, he says, he says. This is a unique feature. We don't actually see this, uh, say, in the epistles. It's here. Um, but that's because the uh, language of preaching is not, it is written, the language of preaching is God says to you today, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. That, that language, it's not, there's no intermediate. There's no, it's not like you're controlling the mouse to make the thing move on the screen. It's actually God reaching out with his hand and actually moving you, right? Or touching you, healing you, speaking to you. It's it, Jesus himself is entering into your ears and into your heart, right? Not through some kind of uh, immediate, intermediate idea. Think about it in regards to the Lord's Supper. Again, this is going to be preached in the context of the Lord's Supper, normally, right? It's Christ, this, take this bread, it, this is my body. That doesn't represent my body. It's not some kind of vessel that carries my body. It is my body. This is my blood, right? And that's God speaking to you directly to tell you that's true. All right, so verse five, let's go through these quotations. Oh, it's already 758. Uh, a lot of introduction. All right, so what is he quoting? You are my son, today I've begotten you. Where is this from? This is from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. All right, um, let's look at Psalm 2, verse 7. 
I'll just jump there. Psalm 2, verse 7. We'll get some context, right? This is all a psalm um, that acknowledges God's Son as the King. You see? Yet I have set my King on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. All right? Ask of me and I will give it to you, the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. So you hear how now, the way the writer of the Hebrews understands it, and we do too, this, is a di- this psalm is a dialogue between the Father and the Son. Um, in the way of, say, our hymn, Salvation Unto Us Has Come. And the Father said to me, and then you hear the words of the Father, and the Son, the son s- speaks back to the Father. All right? So that's where uh, Philip, he wrote Salvation Unto Us, Sparatus. Um, you know, that's where he got that idea. <laughs> it's right out of Psalm 2. Uh, one thing that we should note, it's not immediately apparent here, but it, it was apparent in the way that I translated things. Um, here I translated it identically to New King James, um, is that the quotations here don't come from the Hebrew. And I think we might have talked about it last week. I can't remember. Um, but the New Testament world relied upon the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, usually um, abbreviated as LXX, which is just, uh, what do you call it? Roman numerals for 70, right? The Septuagint, I I don't have to talk about the legend of it, but uh, the Septuagint is actually the oldest manuscript copies of the Old Testament that we have. We don't actually have a Hebrew, a written Hebrew, Old Testament, and actually until about 1000 AD is the oldest copy we have. Um, Now we have fragments of the Old Testament in Hebrew um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered mid-20th century, and um, even I think they're still going into caves even today, and they're finding a few more. Um, That's uh, the the people of Qumran along the Dead Sea. Um, So we do have some manuscripts from them now, and what, what's interesting is about those manuscripts at Qumran act in Hebrew are closer to the Septuagint than they are to the Hebrew we have from 1000 AD, called the Masoretic Text. It's a little side note. Um, we read the Old Testament in Hebrew, um, but it's the Masoretic Text, and, it's rely, and, and for that to be accurate, we have to rely upon oral transmission, um, which is actually, the telephone game isn't, it isn't an accurate representation of how God the Holy Spirit works. Uh, so is it possible that God the Holy Spirit maintained his word orally for thousands of years? Absolutely. Uh, but it's not entirely necessary for us to rely upon you know, that fairly recent uh, manuscript. We can actually look at both Greek and Latin translations from um, you know, hundreds of years before that. Um, the Lat or the this Greek Septuagint being hundreds of years before Jesus, actually, or a hundred, hundred fifty years, something like that. So, um, but and that's who the writer of the Hebrews is quoting. Whether it's Saul, or, excuse me, Paul or Apollos or whoever wrote Hebrews, um, they're going to be quoting the Septuagint. So that's sometimes. Oh, the reason why that's important is that often the English translations will actually translate the. They'll just substitute in the Hebrew rather than letting the Septuagint version ring out. So they try to conform the English to the original quotation rather than just let it be different. In one place in particular, you're going to find that the Septuagint um, quotation is much longer than actually what we have in our Old Testament, the Hebrew version. 
it's like the extended uh, EP, <laughs> the long play version, if you like, the 12 inch remix. Now that's some references that probably nobody gets. All right. Let's see. Today I've begotten you. That's probably pretty straightforward. But again, it's this formula. Um, God is naming Jesus as his true son and inheritor of the um, the rightful heir of the inheritance, which is what we saw in verses 8 and 9 from Psalm 2. All right. Um, you are my son. That's present tense, right? Um, it's not just that God acknowledges or adopts the son. We talked about that last week, the heresies that Council of Nicaea reject. It's not simply that um, Jesus is his son from his birth and baptism to resurrection, but that he's always been his son and will continue to be his son. You are my son. Uh, and he is still his son, even in the midst now in the, of the Christian congregation. The next prophecy here, uh, which goes like this, I myself will be father to him. Good. And he himself will be son to me. So to me, to him, to me, you see those two parallel. This is from 2 Samuel 7, um, verse 14. But I think we should go back to 2 Samuel. What did I say? 7. I think we should go back to verse 11. All right, there we go. Um, let's start up right here. You see, also the Lord. All right, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Who's he talking to here? This may be worth worthwhile for context. Okay, so the Lord of hosts says, thus you shall say to my servant David, I took you from the sheepfold and from following the sheep to be, all right, so you have the shepherd of the sheep uh-huh, and the king, okay, good so far, and the people of Israel who is going to be shepherded. This is all spoken to David, but also the Lord tells you, verse 12, that he will make you a house. All right, what does he mean by a house? He means a royal dynasty. This is very important, right? Uh, a house that, um, like in the ninth commandment, right? Shall not, or tenth commandment, excuse me, you shall not covet, no, ninth, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You're referring not just to his uh, physical house, but actually to his family. Uh, and that's especially explicated then in the tenth commandment. Okay, let's keep going. When your days are fulfilled and you rest, which also means die, uh, but now rest, you know, rest in peace with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you. Zerah in, in Hebrew, right? That's the offspring. Who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house, a dynasty for my name. Ah, there's the name. Remember Hebrews 1 verse 4? There's name. Dynasty. That's a, a royal inheritors. Who are the inheritors with the son, Jesus? That's right, that's us. The people who the writer of the Hebrews is preaching to. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom ah, forever, right? I will be his father. This is just amazing. This is God speaking through Nathan to David. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Ooh-wee. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of son of men. Is Jesus chastened with the rod of men and with the blows of son of men? Yes. But for his iniquity? Actually, yes. This is where Luther gets um, that Jesus is the sinner. He is the adulterer. He is the uh, thief. He is the murderer. 
right? Because he takes the sin of all mankind upon himself and becomes sin for us. He who has become sin uh, in order that we would be the righteousness of God, right? He who had no sin became sin for us, to quote Paul. All right. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house, that is your royal dynasty, your inheritors, and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, or before me in the Septuagint. Your throne shall be established forever. All right, that's an incredible text, isn't it? Now again, they only quote verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. <laughs> but um, this is always important in, in your study of the scriptures. When a, when a brief quote is made, always look at the bigger context and then realize, oh, the, the, the sermon guy is like, oh, you know how it's written, it, you know, I will be his father and he will be my son. And you're like, oh yeah, that promise made to David and all this stuff about the kingdom and how it would come from his own body and there would be a royal dynasty and he would actually be bruised and, and bl- they would receive the blows of, of the sons of men. All right, all that you're supposed to bring to bear. From a brief quote, <laughs> I will be his, to him father and he will be to me son. All right, so this is a prophetic promise from God. What God promised through the prophet Nathan, he fulfills by his recognition of Jesus, right? As the divine father with the divine son and Jesus at his enthronement. Um, Just like what we saw here in five, you are my son, this is happening present tense. So also here, I will be and he shall be. All right. So, what are you meant to what is meant to be concluded here from these two quotes which is where we are so far that even though the angels may be in some sense sons of god which we didn't really talk about but they they are referred to as sons in like job 1 job 2 psalm 29 psalm 89 um they're sons in a lesser sense not the son or as we talked about last week son right without the article god the father will never has never and will never name them as son, my son, the one to whom he, he alone has begotten. So none of the angels have that filial relationship, that, that being of a son with the father, which means also then not being inheritors because they're not true sons, they're only um, creator, created beings, then they also aren't inheritors of the name. Now the name is really important, remember? I was right back here, the more excellent name than they, than the angels. So what is his name here? Son. Son. Right? Got it so far? All right. Now, verses, um, the next two quotations, verses 6 and 7, but now have to do not with the relationship of Jesus to the Father, but now Jesus to the angels. All right? Um, note here that he's called, the, he's called the firstborn. Yeah, Jesus is the Son and higher than the angels. That's the point that he's trying to make here. Um, that, that confession of firstborn comes from Psalm 89, verse 27. I will make him firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. All right. So that's just a, he just throws out that title and he just expects you to know Psalm 89, I think. Um, he says, all right, and let all God's angels perform prostration before him. So the word here is um, proskaneo in Greek. 
um, which literally means to fall down, not on one, just on one's knees, but with face to the ground. All right. Now, what's interesting is that there's only one except there's only one example of this ever being done in the worship of that's commanded in Leviticus, which we've been studying in our congregation prayer each morning, right? And then into Numbers, and that's only I'm trying to remember which offering um, they would be prostrate. I want to say, hmm, proskuneo. Where, which offering is it? I'm looking in the notes here. I can't remember. Um, so that's that's uncommon. Actually, God, um, the, the position of prayer given um, to the priests and, and actually given to the Christian church is one with heads uplifted and arms up. Um, because what, I, you can't see me. I'm not on camera. Maybe I should switch just so you can see what I'm doing here. It's like this. You've got your arms up and your head up. Right? You're looking towards God and you're, you have your arms open to receive from God. Actually, the position of head down and hands closed is not a position of receptivity. That's actually being closed to the word of God and to receiving. I'm not suggesting we do that for children so that they behave, but um, it is interesting that we have that position that's actually not correct. Oh, I know I lost the chat. I guess I should turn off that function. Yeah, there, that one. All right, good. Um, so being face down and on your knees, face down, the, the person that you would do that for is for a king. All right. And uh, God does not command that of uh, it, within the liturgical worship of the church. As a matter of fact, think about like the ironic benediction. Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you. Well, how's his face going to shine upon you if you have your eyes closed and your head bowed? No, you look up towards him and you let his face shine upon you. And then you in your own life will reflect the glory of God. It's much like we talked about liturgically in the uh, Lord's Supper liturgy where we say, lift up your hearts. And then you say, we lift them up to the Lord. That, that your hearts no longer dwell on earthly things, but that when you say that, you're saying that now for the remainder of, of the communion liturgy, you're going to be thinking of the things of God and not the things of this earth, not your day-to-day existence, but rather on the things that God gives there to you in his body and blood. That is forgiveness, life, and salvation. Just as an example. But heads up, hands open. I don't know if you're going to change your piety, but I'm just uh, giving you this, making the case here, okay? (laughs) All right, so let all the angels prostrate before him. So notice that the angels take a position that God does not command of his son or of you who are in the son. Yeah, it's okay to hold your arms up. It's okay. I mean, watch the pastor. You can actually act like the pastor. (laughs) Watch my hands. Watch my arms. When I pray, what do I do? Do I fold my hands and put my head down? No, I have my hands open, right? Because I'm offering before God my prayers and I'm ready to receive his response, his answer. Yeah, I know. These things just, it's weird. I don't know where they come from and then I don't know why we hold on to them. I actually do this to the congregation. When I say the Lord be with you, I again, I'm off camera. I hold out my hands because I, I want to receive back from you and with thy spirit. You see? So I've got my hands open to receive back and then I pull my hands together because I'm, I'm receiving it. Okay. Well, I don't know. Maybe people don't notice these gestures and don't understand what they're for. 
All right, so um, let all the angels worship him. And then of the angels, he says, who makes his angel spirits and ministers, ah, liturgists, a flame of fire. All right, so we have two worship words here. Um, we have worship, of course, proskuneo, but we said that's to be prostrate, to be face down in worship. And then we also have um, who makes his angels liturgist here. And the word um, is liturgia or liturgos, the noun, which is just, you know, liturgist, a flame of fire. Um, so it's, again, it's a technical term. And why translated as minister? I mean, sometimes, because there's actually multiple words that are translated as minister or ministry. Um, and I think we need to be actually a little bit more specific about which word we're using because they don't actually mean exactly the same thing. All right. Son is called firstborn for two reasons we talked about. Um, but think about not only Psalm 89, but also um, firstborn. Again, and this is an emphasis on inheritance, which will come up at the very end in verse 14. All right. Now, um, Deuteronomy 32 Verse 43 is what we have right here. Let all the angels of God worship him. So let's go look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, and see what it actually says in our English. Wait a minute. I don't see it. Do I need to go back? Hold on. Let me go back. All right, so we're in, uh, where were we? Hebrews 1, verse 6, right? Let all the angels of God worship him. Uh, I didn't see that in Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, and he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Here it is. Extended, and the extended verse from the Septuagint is what's being quoted. Um, so here's how it goes in the Septuagint. It goes like this. Rejoice, you heavens, together with him. All right. So it's similar to this. And let all the sons of God prostrate themselves before him. Hmm. Rejoice you nations with his people. So that's this part. Right? And let all the angels of God be strong in him. You see, it's not even close to what's going on in here. This is the only line that's in common with the two texts. All right, so... Um, there's a, there's four things that we need to talk about. And I don't, I wish, uh, do I have a Septuagint? I can't put it up on your screen. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, you can bow your head in honor to the word spoken. I, again, it's just, it's just an act of piety. Um, but heads up, hands open, uh, receptive to God's word is also great as well. Uh, whichever works for you actually to, to be attentive to God's word, I guess is the point. All right, um, so uh, there's no point in us having <laughs> the Deuteronomy text up since that's not what we're doing. So here we're just going to focus on what you see right here. Let all the angels of God worship him. Um, there's four points being made here in this passage. Again, uh, the first is to quote the second line. And, uh, and that's that all the angels of God worship him. Right, and what did we see in the Deuteronomy text? Rejoicing, O Gentiles, with his people. I don't see any worship here or any prostration. Um, actually, it's kind of a combination of that whole quote. 
so I don't know how much more we need to talk about that. But note specifically here, though, is that they, they are um, in, in this fealty relationship as a king. All right. Now let's look at the next text. Since you, there's not much more we can do with the Deuteronomy text. This is Psalm 104, verse 4. Um, and they are liturgists. That is, they assist in the performance of the divine service. That is, they delivered um, on behalf of God to the people the gifts. So they perform this prostration, and then they serve the people. Again, you don't prostrate uh, except before kings and statutes. Oh, there it is. Yeah. The only time prostration was um, prescribed in the Pentateuch was at the presentation of the first fruits of the Lord. So you can see that in Deuteronomy 26. All right, so I found it finally. All right, so in this passage from Psalm 104, verse 4, it tells how the angels differ from the firstborn son. That's what's going on here. So how is it different? His angels are winds or spirits, right? And then they are ministers of fire, of flame, of judgment, right? Now, how is that different than the sun? Well, the sun has flesh. That's the big difference. And two, he comes not simply with judgment, um, but he comes with the gospel. Here it says Psalm 95, verse 7. Oh. Yeah, it's clearly 104, verse 4. Uh, let's go look at Psalm 104. The Septuagint actually ascribes Psalm 104 to David. It says it was a psalm of David. Um, here in the Hebrew, it just says, praise the sovereign Lord. Right, you know this one. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O, my, o Lord my God, you are very great. You, have clothed, you are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. Ooh, see that come up? Um, he lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters and makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the winds, wings of the wind. Right, so we had the spirits being referred to as or the, excuse me, the angels of spirits, and here he walks on the wind, see? So he's above the wind, who makes his angel spirits and his ministers, his liturgists, his servants, a flame of fire. So we have the clouds and the fire in the chamber. And again, back to chapter one at the beginning, who laid the, you who laid the foundations of the earth so that it would be moved, not be moved forever. You covered the deep as with a garment the water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. Think of Jesus and the way he commands the storms, right? When they're upon the sea, or the commands the seas. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys, right? So this voice, I think, he, I think the, the writer here to Hebrews wants us to have this whole psalm in mind and how um, it's a messianic psalm. It's talking about how the Messiah will come and he'll be more than simply a man, but actually be, um, the one that commands the seas and the winds and the and the mountains um, and the springs and the valleys, <laughs> the birds, the waters, causes the grass to grow. He makes the wine glad in the heart of man. He makes the it gives oil to make the, his face shine and gives bread that strengthens a man's heart. Think of Psalm or excuse me, uh, John chapter six on that. Man, it's a beautiful psalm. Uh, we don't need to read it all right now, though. <laughs> Referring to Christ again. All right, so remember, a brief quote, a very intentional brief quote, referring to Jesus and the angels, but if we go read the whole psalm, we see that the angels have this highly subservient position to the Messiah 
to who is both God and man. Okay. Now, the next two utterances um, are, again, um, God addressing the Son. So, referring to the royal Son. Uh, the first here comes from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter, the throne of righteousness. All right. So, we can go look at that and see what that psalm's about. Just go right up to the beginning. The glories of the Messiah and his bride. That's a nice, nice introduction. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is a poured upon your lips. What a lovely song for the song for the church to sing back to, to Jesus, right? Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty, uh, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. That works out really well with the enemies as a footstool. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now note a change of voice here. O God, but it's been talking about the sun. Got it? All right. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. <laughs> See? God, your God. The Son of God is also God? Yes. <laughs> it's right here in the psalm. Uh, this is one of the places that Christians have um, seen the plurality of persons within the Godhead, right? That he is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And with the oil of gladness more than your companions, all your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Uh, those would be his burial garments, by the way. <laughs> Out of the ivory palaces by which you have been made glad, King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. All right. Isn't that beautiful? What a, mess, a beautiful messianic psalm. Psalm 45. All right. So let's go back to our text. I know. It's hard to keep up. I'm going a mile a minute, but uh, so it is. All right. So this psalm here that's quoted in verse 8 of Hebrews 1 is all from Psalm 45. Um, go back and read the whole psalm, and you'll really see uh, what's being brought to bear here. Is uh, It's a prophetic word of blessing that he speaks um, to the king at its coronation. Right? God grants the king an eternal throne like his, right, and a splendor and majesty that by right belongs to God, but then is given to the Son, who is also God. Um, and that he will judge the world with equity just as God the Father does. So all the, all the authority and power of the Father is given unto the Son. That's what Psalm 45 is about. So there's, there's probably five points um, that should be made there. Oh, here, and one more. Should we do this one? No, we'll come back to this one. All right, so five things. There's all sorts of stuff I could say here. Hmm. Twice um, the Son is addressed as God in the quotation here. See, therefore God, your God. So. The Son is acknowledged as God. Now, kings in the ancient world were um, called gods, but this would run in contradiction then to Israel's confession that there is one God, God alone, right? Unless, again, plurality of persons, God the Father, God the Son. God himself, the Father, declares the Son's throne to be forever and forever, just like we saw from 2 Samuel, right? Chapter 7, earlier, that he quoted. The throne here 
symbolizes the office of kingship, right? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Uh, and, and from the throne, that's where God judges. That's where the king would judge. Um, let's see. God acknowledges that the son will do his will, right? The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You'll do as it's been given to you. And that he's been anointed there. So there, um, we mentioned all the names that are played out here. We have the son, we have God, and now we have another name. And that is Christ, the anointed one being alluded to here. Think um, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Right? Beautiful. Isaiah 61, uh, verses 1 to 3, really, and verses 10 to 11, too. So he's the Messiah, and rather than his companions. Right? So um, the apostles are actually anointed or chosen or set apart um, to be ministers of God, but they are still under the sun, right? So think about like the throne room vision in Revelation. Um, Jesus is surrounded by the four living creatures, which are the gospel writers, um, the saints and angels, right? But the 12 apostles and the 12, pro and the 12 tribes, the, it's actually those whom God anoints, mankind that God anoints that are actually closest to the throne and the angels surround them, right? All right. Um, so his brothers who share in his, in his call. And then uh, verses 10 to 12 is the sixth quotation. That's a long one. Look at that. Um, that's from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. And maybe some other allusions in there. So Psalm 102, let's go look at that. Told you this would take a little bit of time. All right. I said, um, oh my God, do not take away Take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. All right. So it's closely linked to the, the last passage here, uh, verses 8 and 9. So that relationship of the father to the son. Um, but in this one, it's, it's, it's actually Zion. It's the church that's crying out um, to the son or to God that they not be destroyed, that they would he, he would hear their trouble and that he would restore them um, to spare them and give, give them his presence. All right. You see, and you will fold them up. All right. Um, oh, here's another name, by the way. I told you there's lots of names in here. What's the name given to Jesus here? We had Messiah. We've had God, of course. We've had Son. And now we have Lord, Curious, right? Um, this is the divine name. The same who is yesterday, today, and forever, as we'll see in, in chapter 13. All right. So now we have another name. Remember the name, we go back here to. Verse 4, the more excellent name than they. He is called Son. He is called, um, he's called King. He is called God. He is called Messiah. And now he's called Lord. All these are more excellent names. All right. 
And now we have one more, but. <laughs> but to which of the angels has he ever said? And here's Psalm 110. And I said, Psalm 110 is going to come up over and over in this book. Here it is again, verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is an interesting reference. You probably wondered where it came from. Um, it's actually Egyptian. Remember when, um, when Israel and Aaron make the golden calf when Moses is on Sinai? Aaron actually calls the golden calf God's footstool. Um, so that's this is from Pharaoh. Pharaoh, um, they would actually Pharaoh's throne had um, allegedly, uh, allegedly anyway, had depictions of his enemies around the base of the throne because he was literally had his feet upon them, right? Um, and then Moses picks up on that, and of course through uh, by the work of the Spirit, that's a picture then that's given in the Psalm, right? Um, it's not simply their destruction. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, your foes, uh, put your foes under your feet. But I love under your feet because, of course, that makes you think of, you will crush the serpent's head. How? With your foot. He'll strike your heel, right? So you have that language of the foot in Genesis 3. Um, but um, the, way, the way that you should understand this is that um, the Lord's enemies are completely in submission to him. Being at the right hand of the Father, they have now all been placed under his feet. They're in submission to his rule. We forget this when it comes to spiritual matters. And we don't want to lose track of this. That sin, death, and devil, all three are defeated by Jesus and his suffering and death and resurrection. But they're also now used by God for his good and gracious purpose. You're like, what? How does Jesus use your sin, use death, even use the devil for your benefit. All right, I'm, I'm letting you think about it. I mean, this is where this is why Luther famously quips, and I, I quote it all the time. Um, he's not he's not just simply the devil; he's God's devil, or he's like he's he's on a leash. We we attribute so much power and authority to the devil. The devil is so powerful, and he made me do it. He's got the devil in him. All these kind of expressions that are actually contradiction to the scriptures. Yes, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The text doesn't say, and he can. He can't. He cannot devour you. He cannot overcome you any more than he overcame Jesus in, in, in the wilderness. All right? He's on a leash. God actually uses, even, your, even the way that you're tempted by the devil, he uses that to draw you or to really, really turn your attention away from yourself and back to him, to trust in him, right? He uses your own sin to show you your weakness, to show you your, your, um, the way that you think selfishly that you can depend upon yourself in order to turn your attention back towards him for forgiveness, life, and salvation, that you would be, once again, um, slaves of righteousness, as Paul would say, famously, all right? So, Yes, the enemies are under his feet, and they will be destructed, of course. I mean, death will finally, is the last enemy to be destroyed. That's what Paul says, and that will be on the last day, right? And the devil himself has been defeated. He's been cast down from, from the heavens, and he does prowl around, right? But there is a place prepared for him. It's called hell, and that's, <laughs> that's where he will be finally on the last day. 
So in the midst of that, we're in this divine service where God is continually ministering to us with forgiveness, life, and salvation. How does he do that? He does that through his angels, all right? Which is right here. Are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister? Are they not liturgical spirits sent forth to liturgize? Actually, there it is, minister. Actually, that's diakonia, so that's a good word. To minister for those who will inherit salvation. You. All right, so you got it all? The angels are sent. Why? To minister on behalf of Christ, to serve you, his saints. That means you are higher than the angels too. Now, it is true, for a time, Jesus was a little lower than the heavenly beings, as the psalmist says, right? He was made man, and the, and the angels, of course, um, sang in glory um, to his name. Think Luke chapter 2, right? When he was born. Right? But, but now that he's at the right hand of the Father, his exalted right hand, they, they are ministering servants to him. Well, they always were. But now he, of course, is higher than them, and they are under his feet too. Right? And we who are in Jesus then are also at God's right hand, at his right side. Right? And the angels now serve us as well because we are in the Son. So, I mean, there's so many things that can be said about Psalm 110, this famous quote, and it's used frequently throughout the book. So it's going to keep coming up. The first is that, of course, the enemies of God's Son who oppose him as priest and king are also our enemies. And chief of those being the devil, which we'll see in chapter 2, all right, chapter 2, 14. Um, yet the Father subdues the Son's enemies and puts them under his feet, along with everything else in the world to come. That, that'll be in chapter 2 as well, because God exercises his kingship through his Son. Um, so, I mean, that's, I don't think we want to lose that, lose sight of that, that all these enemies of Christ have been defeated, they've been placed under his feet. And because we are in him, they are under our feet too. We can um, quote the psalm that we've been praying this week, Psalm 91, you know, tread upon the, um, the adder and the asp, I think is the old translation. Um, okay, now let's talk a little bit about this liturgy word, because I think it's really important. I know we're going to go a little bit over tonight, that's fine. Um, it's service performed by an individual or a group on behalf of the whole community. Um, but it's used, this word, and the reason why I don't like ministering, but I want to say liturgizing, is it's a specific word used in the Greek Old Testament for the work of the, of the Levites on behalf of God's people in the divine service, that is, in the, in the public worship of the church. Right? So it distinguishes between the, it, it's different than ministry. It's the word that's used in the, in the Greek Old Testament for the priests and the work done by the Levites. Or, it's to distinguish between the work done by the priests and the work done by the Levites. That's good. So liturgizing is the work of the Levitical priesthood. This is going to come up. This is really important in the rest of the book. We're talking about a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek when we get to that. Um, and their, their liturgy is a ritual responsibility. So when we're talking about the angels, they can only do the will of God, right? And obviously the ones who don't were cast out. Those would be the, the devil and his angels. They have a specific job, and, and that's what they do. It's all bound up in this, in this word liturgia. Um, and so here in Hebrews, I mean, the writer is co-opting this, this language and to show um, that the angels who serve with Jesus you know, do so as ministers of the holy things, liturgical ministers of the holy things. 
in the heavenly sanctuary. And this is something far more than the Old Testament covenant. This is far more than the Levitical priesthood, which is going to come up frequently throughout the book. That this is the eternal priesthood. This is the eternal liturgy. This is the, the song of the saints and the angels and the whole host of heaven. Think of Isaiah 6 or the way we say it in the preface. Um, they're commissioned by God, sent forth, commissioned here, apostello, their apostles, to do what? Minister on behalf of God's people, those who will inherit salvation upon earth. All right. Oh, by the way, the other angel. So we had Raphael, we had Gabriel, we have Mikael, and we have Phanuel. That's the other one. I couldn't remember. Um, they move about God's throne. Again, that's from, if you've got a, um, a book with the Apocrypha, a Bible with the Apocrypha, that's in First Enoch. Uh, you can also see it in Tobit, I think, is the other one. Um, these ministers are given, these angels are given not to be above Jesus, but rather to minister on behalf of the Son to those who inherit salvation in the Son. That's you. And who already now, through your baptism into Jesus, share in the eternal inheritance, right? You are part of God's kingdom. You are co-heirs with Christ, as Paul would say. And that means you inherit what? Everything that he purchased and won for you. That is namely your salvation. That's your inheritance. This word inheritance is beautiful. Of course, it draws us right to the language of baptism, doesn't it? All right. Now, we never hear um, these verses, 5 through 14. It's not part of, it's not part of the liturgy. It's not part of the lectionary, um, whether three or one year. And there's so much there. We have all the names of Jesus, Lord of Lord, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. We have begotten of the Father, you know, the first, the first begotten, the only monogenes, the um, prototokos, actually, in Greek, right? The firstborn. Um, we have, like I talked about, we have the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, right? That God, as Luther says in the large catechism, God's name is the greatest treasure and the most sacred thing we have. Because in his name, we have everything that he is and everything he's promised to be for us. Right. Um, and through his excellent name, we have, um, we have access to the heavenly throne, right? Um, we're brought into the family of God. We are called sons with the, with the, with the son. Um, all of that is all in these <laughs> short verses. Um, in regards to all of this, by the way, um, Hebrews 1, specifically uh, 1 verse 3, and then the rest of this too, where it says, um, <clears throat> who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself had purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Regarding that, uh, our Lutheran confession says, well, and actually, actually 13 here too. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is what um, our formula of Concord, one of the Lutheran confessions say. Article 8. We believe that the cited passages, Hebrews 1 verse 3, Hebrews 1 verse 13, illustrate the majesty of the man Christ, which Christ received according to his humanity at the right hand of majesty and power of God, so that also according to and with the same assumed human nature of his, Christ can be and is present wherever he wills, and in particular, that he is present with his church and community on earth as mediator, head, king, and high priest. That he is present with his church and community on earth as mediator, head, king, head, king, and high priest. Isn't that beautiful? All that. 
right out of these few short verses. All right. I'm sorry I'm making your head spin on all of this. Um, but if you've got a study Bible, you can do it, right? You can go back and re-look re at it. Um, look at all the citations. Go back to Psalm 110, Psalm 104, Psalm, uh, what was the other one? Psalm 45, right? I'm just scrolling back trying to remember. Um, <laughs> Psalm 104, we got that. Oh, yeah, the Deuteronomy 32 bit, which is not real helpful. And, of course, um, 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2, right? So we had seven quotations, one after another. Uh, is it meant to, like, get you all distracted? Yeah, Yahweh. Well, that's, and by the way, Yahweh um, is the Hebrew here for Lord. You see how Lord's in all caps? Kurios? That's the Greek translation of the divine name, right? Yeah, that's there too. That's the same as Lord. Um, it's, not, it's not meant to overwhelm you. It's not to make your head spin. It's meant to, maybe in a good way, but that you see it as, again, this fleur legia, the legia, that this beautiful flower in the way that the scriptures, um, what the what the preacher is doing here is um, proclaiming God's word to you, not just teaching God's word, but proclaiming it, present tense, so that it's like a flower that opens up and you see this wonderful unity um, and exposition um, from the prophets and the Psalms of who Jesus is and his relationship to the angels. And then it's going to work towards his relationship to the church and to you personally. Okay. Like I said, it's a lot. Um, so next time, let's say we're going to at least do one through four, but then we've got more angel stuff. I don't know. We might get through verse nine. So if you want to read ahead chapter two and try to get your head around that, if you've got a study Bible, read the, all the notes, uh, you can bring those to bear and in our conversation below. Um, and again, remember, the whole point here is to establish who Jesus is, that he's the son of God, that he's for us, um, that he's not just another angel. Um, but more than that, he's establishing that he now and currently speaks to us, present tense, to us in the divine service. And that in that divine service, he ministers to us as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but also that his angels are ministering with him, serving us, um, not only in divine service and in you know Sunday morning, but throughout our entire life, all that's being confessed here, which is really quite beautiful. Yeah, it does sound like a rose, although it has seven petals. So posy, actually, is uh, how that would work. I don't know. Posies have seven or six petals. Whatever it works, seven's a good number, though, right? Yeah. All right. So yeah, we went a little bit longer than usual, but that's okay. A lot to cover. Um, also, let's see. All right. So yeah, that should be enough for tonight. Um, make sure you join us tomorrow morning for our congregation of prayer. And, uh, uh, of course, join us on the weekend, Sunday for divine service. We are going to start Sunday morning Bible study or restart in John chapter 12, which is where we left off back in March. So now only six months later, uh, we get back to it, which is beautiful. I'm glad to get back to it because we're going to be in Holy Week, uh, and we'll work through Holy Week um, as we're going through all of God's Word. Isn't it lovely having so many ways? I mean, I'm really delighted that the congregation has afforded me the opportunity, you know, to study God's Word so actively in all these different contexts, you know, with daily prayer, with uh, our two Bible studies a week, catechesis of the young people. Um, you know, it really provides a grounding and a... Um, <clears throat> 
a solid foundation in the midst of a world that's in chaos. So yeah, so glad to have you all with us. I will try. Uh, I think we're going to meet for Bible study in the friendship room on Sunday. Um, so I will try to figure out a way to set that up to record it. I don't know if I'll be able to stream it, but maybe record it and then we can post it later for those of you who can, um, can't join us in person. All right. So again, that'll be John, but, uh, yeah, read Hebrews two for next week. I'll be with you all. We'll see you in the morning.